Well, hello there, friends. Steve Weens here, your host of This Good Word, as always. Today, I have David Fitch, uh, author of The Church of Us Versus Them. And you're going to hear a lot. David is a really amazing mix of theologian and philosopher. And so today, uh, you're going to hear our conversation really all about sort of the state of the church, what it is, where it's going, and where the hope can come from. And so after you listen to the to this conversation, uh, really go out and get The Church of Us Versus Them by David Fitch. I think it's fascinating and really, really helpful. So enjoy this conversation. Uh, David Fitch, how are you, my friend? Uh, good to be with you, Steve. I'm doing well. It's a nice, crisp Monday morning here in Chicago. Uh, uh, so, I mean, uh, we don't get a lot. So uh, I'm happy. You know, we have had crazy rain lately. I'm in Minneapolis, and we've had just gray rain. <laughs> like, it's either hotter than hell here in the fall or else colder than, you know, it's just bad. So I was just going to say, everybody gives Chicago just such a bad rap for weather. I'm telling you, this is becoming the place to be. Well, you know, I think, so I lived in Chicago for a couple of years, and I do think spring comes a little earlier in Chicago than it does in Minneapolis, even though we're pretty close. You're just, you know, southern enough. And yeah, I mean, it's less, you know, less, yeah, less snow. I don't know if it's the place to be, though. I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Okay, so you wrote this beautiful book, um, The Church of Us Versus Them. I've been a pastor for 24 years, and so, and I've been following your thoughts, your work for a while, but this one I think is really a, a really timely uh, book uh, because um, it seems like right now everybody's retreating to the ends of the spectrum on every issue, including the church. Uh, they're lobbing grenades from those places, and so my, my first question really is like, is it really as bad as it seems or is it always like this? And we're just thinking that, you know, it's, it's some, some, uh, extra special vitriol that's, that's happening now. Like, is it worse than it, than it's been or, or is it just, nah, it's, you know, it's a blip. Yeah. Yeah. My, my answer to that question is, you know, uh, like, my study of ideology and sociology of groups and all that that went into the early part of that book is really the, uh, the, the study of how things work in a culture uh, in autonomy from God. And so these dynamics have been going on, you know, theoretically at least forever. Yeah. But I will say, I, I, I will say, and, I, and I've been around, you know, I'm, I'm just past 6-0. I've been around a while. And I'll tell you something, Steve. I think, I think what's going on now is like the worst, and and I'm saying even among well, especially among Christians, and it just seems like every little thing becomes a wedge to drive us into uh, either virtue signaling or taking a position over against somebody else, and it's very hard to make space. Um, for doing the work that God's called us to do, and that is to be his presence and heal, reconcile, renew, restore, um, and, and make restoration, uh, reparations to some extent. But it's very hard to do that kind of uh, healing work that God wants to do in the world when uh, Facebook, Twitter, 
Instagram, all the other things, all the other tools that have, uh, you know, not, not including 52 different uh, news, uh, cable news stations. <laughs> Everything is splitting us up and fractioning us against one another. And I, I just don't know if it's ever been, at least in my time, it's never been this bad. Yeah, I mean, I'm approaching 50 and I would I would agree. I mean, that's not 60, but I would agree that it just certainly it certainly seems like it's more incendiary. Like there's people like we're our, our hair trigger is quicker, you know, like our our and, and, and our our ability to become insufferably self-righteous about our own issues, no matter where you are. Uh, and it, it seems to be hotter um, than ever. And so like give me give us um a little synopsis of like the the essential question behind church of us versus them and then sort of why you knew it was time to write it does that make sense yeah yeah i mean i've been thinking about these issues for uh, i don't know, 10 15 20 years i've been i, I somewhere uh, i don't know somewhere around 20 years ago maybe longer I became a post-structuralist. For those of you who don't follow, you know, um, epistemology and intellectual history, I'm, I'm kind of like not one of those modern people. I, I was an evangelical white Christian being raised in that, and it wasn't working. And then I entered this culture, and I'm trying to find my way. By the way, I find so many people in that space right oh, now. Oh, yeah, big time. Ex-white evangelicals just devastated by what has become of the white evangelical church. And they're just trying desperately to find their way. And when I was in that space, I found people like Stanley Hauerwas. I found post-structuralist studies, even queer studies. That's going to sound weird to some of your audience. To, to help me deconstruct what was going on in, in, in culture so that I didn't get just absorbed in it. And I found a way through, and, and, and that led me to Anabaptist. Yeah, this work in neo-anabaptism and understanding the church is a healing work of God in and through Jesus Christ, and so uh, yeah, I uh, that's what led me to write. That. So so the study of ideologies become part of the way I think about engaging culture, and and by the way, if you know anything about Europe and World War II and and the horrific things that happened there, most people know about it in the sixty million people that were killed, the, the thousand and some cities which were leveled and destroyed, uh, six million Jews burnt alive in, in, in Auschwitz and other concentration camps. And, and there were just a lot of post people after that, post-Marxists, we called them. Well, I wasn't alive at the time, but the people that were there were calling them post-Marxists because Marx hadn't really worked out. And we're trying to figure out ideologically how like 17,000 Lutheran pastors could go Heil Hitler. Christians right, right. in Germany became Nazis. How did this happen? And I think maybe we're in a similar time frame right now. And so my, uh, my need to write this book was let's make some of these diagnostics um, um, easy for people to understand. And, and then let's offer them to the church. And then Jesus paints just a completely different way. He describes very viscerally different ways to think about and engage the conflicts that are inevitable in terms of, uh, of, of living life. And I'm talking about any, anybody's going to get into a conflict, but how do we navigate those in a world that's so struck um, thoroughly through, through with antagonisms? 
Yeah. Okay. So two quick questions. Uh, how, first of all, give us just a, like a one sentence definition of post-structural thought. Um, so go there. And then, then I have a second question about um, why you went to the Anabaptist tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Po post-structuralism is uh, <laughs> very hard. Uh, structuralists see the world epistemologically, or how do I say that in French or normal language? <laughs> uh, see how we know things in, in terms of individual uh, terms. I think, therefore, I am. Post-structuralists see we are being formed by the structures of culture to think and even experience and be ensconced by power structures. We don't even know it. And um, I think, by the way, post-structuralism, if we can just get in on some of the ideas, help us diagnose what the heck is happening to our culture in relation to the politics and national politics and everything else that's going on in our culture. But it just shifts it from I'm the center as, as an individual to my centers being formed by structures. Yes. And in ways Does that help. Yep, completely. <laughs> and I would ask the question, but also add like. Is it in especially in ways that I'm not even conscious of and not even aware of? Oh, oh, absolutely. This is this is Michel Foucault 101. You're being shaped to think it was your idea that right. I uh, that I voted for Trump. Right. You're being shaped to think right. it was my idea that I have this view of sexuality or gender. You've been shaped to think patriarchy is the way to go or other versions of gender relations. And, you know, it was, my, it was not, this was all me and it's, it's obvious and it's the way it should be. Yeah. 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 So like uh, maybe, maybe to put it in another way, although that was, that was really, really helpful and really, really good. Like we, even as it, as it relates to, let's say an evangelical Christian belief about, the substitutionary atonement, penal substitutionary atonement, that that, like most of us, and I come from that background, ha believe that that was the only view of atonement, and not only the only view of atonement, but the right one. And if anyone thought any differently, it wasn't that they had a different frame of mind or a different understanding of scripture. It was that they just 100% were wrong, <laughs> right? right, And like, like so... So post-structuralism and, and, and maybe in a movie like The Matrix, right? Like, like was that a helpful um, cultural signpost for saying like a like a metaphor, a parable of what of what is happening? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was the classic. Uh, what is that? Twenty five years old. No, that was the classic metaphor for understanding how we're being uh really absorbed into a, a construct, a social world, and we don't even know it. And, and then, by the way, when we even do uh, know it, do we really, this is, this is Slavoj Žižek, he'll say, do we even want to get out of it? Because he'll say, we'll just go cynical and we'll just keep watching. <laughs> yeah. Forgive me if I'm taking one side or the other here, but we'll just keep watching Fox News because it enables me to go to my job, be a white person, relatively comfort, not have to deal with any of the uh, struggles and pains of the injustice of the world. And then I might be exploiting for my own ends. It just enables me to keep going. So I'm going to, even if I know it's a bunch of baloney, I'm going to keep watching Fox News because it make me feel better and help me function in the world and be comfortable. Yes, so, I mean, yes, in yes, terms yes. of the substitutionary view of the atonement, you know, um, the substitutionary view of the atonement was a very local theology 
in Germany by this guy Martin Luther and some other uh, reformed people after him. And it, and it made sense because the Roman Catholic malaise at that time was just guilt-ridden. You are going to hell. It's all on you. Do the 52 things that you have to do to be a better Catholic or you're going to go to hell. And Martin Luther read Romans, actually on the seat of a toilet, and he got this, <laughs> you know, he got this insight, and it was great. But, but now it's become ensconced into the way we think about the world, and it enables us actually to live in certain ways. And to break it up is very threatening. Yes. It's very – to look at it maybe historically and scripturally from another lens, it can be very disruptive. But that disruption is exactly what we're going through now, especially white evangelicalism, especially if you're under the age of 38 and your megachurch pastor committed a, right. uh, a moral failure. You are, you are trying to figure out, well, where do I go now? So that's what we're going through right now. So that, that is ideology being disrupted. That, that's what I talk about in the church of us versus them in those first few chapters. Well, let's let's get back to that, because I feel like I want to talk about Rene Girard now and scapegoat theory and how that relates to enemy, you know, and all that stuff. And we could we could go yeah. on for years, but it might only be interesting to me and you. So um, although I doubt that uh, you talk about sort of three flashing lights on the dashboard as it relates to the malaise the church finds itself in right now. And maybe even these white evangelicals who are struggling to make sense and leaving church. Uh, because they just can't stand it. But the three flashing lights that you write about are loss of Christendom, Christendom influence, the problem of Christendom uh, um, habits, and Christendom tendency to make enemies. So uh, is there anything you want to like, like talk about why you think those are the three flashing lights on the dashboard that we need to pay attention to if we're going to make our way through this, uh, this time? Yeah, well, uh, all right, maybe I can just summarize it uh, by talking about how Christendom, we were in power. Or we, uh, how do I put it? Most people say, what do you mean we're in power? Uh, Christendom was hegemonous, right? It, it was like everywhere. In this, I'm talking now 50s, 60s, even 70s. The average person, even the person who didn't go to church, even the person who was not raised in Christianity, would see Christianity as the dominant way to think about God. And and we pretty much were in charge. I mean, if you know, the censors on the networks at that time, you know, there were only three networks or whatever. I mean, uh, the, the Christian view of sexuality was never challenged. It was pretty much, uh, you know, censored so that you didn't have to see alternatives on the television. We were in charge. And, and we were never challenged. And all we had to do going to church was reinforce what we already knew. And, and now in the last, oh, I'd say at least 20 years, all that is changing. Uh, I'm not just talking about sexuality, but, the, but the, uh, the, the, the place of the white evangelicals is being challenged by exposing the racism, not only in white evangelicals, but the history of the United States and the role of certain white theologies. We're, we're being challenged, so we're losing power. And the first thing that happens when you lose power, folks, and you become a minority culture when you're used to the habits of power, is you either get defensive and you try to hold on, and or you accommodate and try to align yourself with the, with the currents, the social 
cultural currents as they go to try and stay relevant or to try and stay at least, yeah, I have some merits here. And either one has taken us out of engaging culture for the gospel. And instead, that we, we're, we're now, you know, caught up in this antagonism. We're caught up in defending or, or being against defending. And I think that's the state the church is in uh, because of the loss of Christendom. And that's why one of the motivating factors, one of the things that have moved us into such an antagonistic state in the church today. We Christendom has flittered away, and now we're caught up in either defending ourselves and holding on to the past or trying desperately to become relevant so somebody will listen to us and we still have a reason to be the church. Yeah, and they're both, like, like as you said, very defensive, defeatist stances. And I think there's a way in which, can't, I mean, I tend to see the fall of Christendom as the best news that could happen to the church. You know what I mean? Like, like I, I think horrific abuses have happened and continue to happen um, as as the church has has stayed um, in power and able to continue to abuse without even being um, called to the carpet. And I think one of the good things that I see I'm interested to hear what you say about that, though. Maybe I should put that in the form of a question. Do you see the, the the fall of Christendom as a good thing or a bad thing or neither? Well, you know, um, I'm an Anabaptist, right. and uh, I, I learned I learned how to be an Anabaptist from various authors. Uh, and uh, I'm not a historic. I, I, I'm a still an ordained pastor in the Christian Missionary Alliance. I'm not a historic, uh, and a, you know, Mennonite or anything like that, but. But Anabaptist thought just it sees that God works through his presence, not through earthly power. And often, often earthly power or coercive power uh, works against what God wants to do. Uh, caveat, God does use earthly power, even government, to preserve and get some things accomplished. But redemption happens, restoration, healing, forgiveness, reconciliation, the work of God to heal and renew the world happens through his presence. So obviously, I think all the ways coercion in the church took place is a, a bad thing, but it became even worse. It was, so So for years, I mean, there was some hard one and, and good work done and wisdom done in the church. And there was, for whatever you might think of its ills, there were some good things the church became. But as with all things, when you get used to the good things and you realize it's so good, you start to tell everybody else what to do. Yeah. And at that point, you stop. That's not the way it works. So I don't want to wipe off all of Christendom for the last 1,800 years. But at the same point, anytime we we coerce we work against the way god works and then you put that into the defensive modes or even the accommodative modes that we're in now that we are no longer a predominant cultural force now it even gets uglier and so yes it's time to take a deep breath say this is the way god works we're not in power and start going about the task of cultivating the way of life god's given us in jesus christ to not only disciple ourselves in Christ and allow him to work and heal us, 
but to bring that healing to the world as a witness to the gospel. And to do that, we have to get rid of this power structures. We have to get rid of these things that they christened them. Uh, there's so many of them still left over. I think this is one of our big fights. And this is just, again, another reason why I thought writing this book uh, had some merits. Big time. Well, I, I, I think it, it does. It's very timely. You talk about the enemy-making machine. And so define what you mean by that, because I think that's right at the heart of what's happening. And then why that's the enemy-making machine seems to be so alive and well, even in the church, when it shouldn't be, but it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The enemy-making machine is my popular word for ideology and how it works. Sure. And uh, there's a couple of basic things I try to describe, like one, a banner. Um, some, something when, when we take a belief that we, you know, uh, ascribe to and we extract it out of everyday life and we make it into a banner, a cause to wave and gather people around over against those who don't believe that is how a banner works. And, and so it's just, I, I go through and, and like, remember a few things that were good at one time, like I like to talk about, you know, my denomination, holiness groups who were making a discernment in the 1920s that drinking was a bad thing. Alcohol was a bad thing. But and it was discerning among many people whose families were falling apart due to alcoholism. You know, the 20s were prohibition and everything. There's a good thing going on there. OK, but extracted out of everyday life and discernment, it became like a, a banner that uh, defined who we are over against those people who don't drink. I don't know what kind of family you grew up in, Steve, but, you know, uh, this is this is kind of like, oh, the, we are the church that doesn't drink. Imagine mm -hmm. standing for that. And those are the people, those liberals, those <laughs> those backsliders, they're the ones who do drink. And, and you can see that. Oh, yeah. Uh, a very good discernment turns into an enemy making machine and there's all sorts of them. And I talk about premillennials, but I also want to talk about things like sexuality. We extract one thing out of all the sexual issues we got to deal with gay or lesbian sexuality. And we make it into an object, a banner. And this defines who we are over against those other people. And, um, in the process, we lose the ability to actually discern what God is doing on the ground in our lives in all the areas of sexuality, which I'm telling you, we need to discern and allow God to work in. And so that's the banner. The The second thing is there's an enemy making part of this, an object. Uh, uh, Slavoj Žižek, the, the uh, Slavonian uh, ideologist says, calls it the objet petit a in French, or that little object that we extract and we make into an enemy mm -hmm. so that uh, and we distance ourselves from that enemy. And we don't talk to that enemy. We lift up the gay or lesbian person and make them into an enemy. They're no longer a person. They're that. Uh, and, and and we do this with, um, you know, those people who drink or, or whatever the uh, banner might be. That's a sure sign that we have entered into the enemy-making machine. When we're not actually going directly to the person and engaging the person. Person, but we've made them into an enemy. This is goes against everything Jesus teaches us about the practice of his presence and in reconciliation. The other thing I talk about is uh, perverse enjoyment, uh, uh, this, this kind of glee I get out of, out of when someone else falls mm. because I'm against them. This is another sure sign that the enemy-making machine is 
is uh, at work. And, and something that happens out of all this is my identity, who I am, gets shaped by being against that other thing or person, object that we made into an object. And and that's very that's why you can argue all you want uh, to this person, but it'll never change because their whole identity is built around being against this thing. And shockingly, this is the way the church has become in so many parts of our cultural entanglements. We've yeah. become ensconced in the making machine. I argue, by the way, Matthew 18, 15 through 20, the simple practice of reconciliation that Jesus gives us to practice as a daily part of our everyday lives is the exact opposite of the enemy making mm-hmm. machine. Well, and I, I, this is where I you do know, want we, to we, go ahead. I was just going to say, he asked, go face to face. Don't make an enemy. Go face to face. He asked, come together in my name. Uh, give up your subjectivity, your identity into what I want to do here. <clears throat> he says, you know, um, what is bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. In other words, uh, it's not a win or lose thing. It is I'm going to use this to reshape the world. And so it's so different than the enemy making machine. And if we conflict is good. Mm-hmm. And I, I tell you, we can know the presence of God in conflict. But when we dig in on antagonisms in the enemy making machine, it's very bad. It goes against what God wants to do in the church and in the world. Well, I mean, this is I think this is at the heart of it. And I love that you that you write so so eloquently about it. It reminds me of so there's a little book that a guy named Elton Trueblood wrote right after World War Two called uh, The Futility of. Oh, now I forget the title, but essentially. Oh, man, I really wanted this book. No, no, no. I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to find it. the futility of anyway, uh, I'll remember it in five minutes or in five years. But um, essentially, he, yep. he he's looking at uh, World War Two gave particularly the United States of America such such identity and such purpose. And so the book was written in 1951 yes. as like he all of a sudden he noticed the the depression, the malaise, the the lack of especially among men, like the 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 lack of joy, purpose. And it was because we lost like we 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 found so much uh to unite around around a common enemy. It's such a uniting diabolical uh way of coming together. Um, but it is, it, it, it is successful for a time. Like it, it brings it, that's the tribal nature of, you know, if there isn't an enemy, we will make one. Right. I mean, that's what you say. Like that, that's the essential nature of, of what tribes do. And we will band together to, uh, to demonize that enemy, to, um, to kill it. And that, and, and that's where I think Rene Girard is. Uh, or was thinking some really great thoughts around the scapegoat theory and, and, um, and how to see the atonement a little differently in terms of Christ suffering with, um, enemy and right. I mean, so like, can we see the enemy? Like if, what if we saw the enemy, whoever it is as Christ, (laughs) you know, and go ahead and do what you're going to do. Um, but it's to Christ. I don't know. Um, okay. I just went on a rant. No, but that was great. And I want to get that, that out, True Blood book, especially since it was the 19, early 1950s, right after the war, because that was when so many people 
uh, especially in Europe, we're dealing with the aftermath of this, wondering how do I go on? And I, and I think it's so instructive today. Yeah. Well, I have this machine uh, in my hand here that that enables me to look it up on this this worldwide <laughs> web. I'm going to do it here. Uh, Elton Trueblood, um, the futility. Oh, my gosh. Come on. Hang with us, folks. Hang with us. Hang they're, with They're fine. They're fine. Uh, <laughs> come on. You know what? Alternative to futility. That's what it's called. Uh, Elton Trueblood, great. Alternative to Futility. It's a little book out of print, but you can find it on Amazon. And it's brilliant because I think it really outlines um, some of what you're talking about, even in terms of post-structuralism. But... Um, okay, before we run out of time, David, I, I really do want to ask you about like this idea of what's biblical, you know, because that's another thing. Like when we're talking about ideologies that compete even within the church, pretty soon, depending on your background, we're going to start to get into, well, you know, I'm just being biblical and man, I wish I could believe differently, but this is what the Bible says. How do we, how does that play into church of us versus them? This idea that we know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I try to picture in the book, I try to describe how the Bible can become, um, you know, a uh, caught up in the enemy making machine, can become a tool, a blunt instrument uh, to beat each other up with. And, uh, of course, uh, I just don't see this is the way the early church read Scripture together. Um, and, uh, of course we have individualized it and we've turned into, we've used various doctrines of defending its authority to kind of create uh, a sense that I can know what the Bible says as an individual. And we line up ideologically on sides using the Bible. I, I try to show how, um, that works in at least the evangelical church of my heritage, but also it works in other places as well. And I, then I say, let, we need a practice of reading the Bible. Uh, when we get into struggles, uh, you know, in Acts, the, the ch early church, when they were debating over could, did, could Gentiles be included in the kingdom of God without during, doing certain um, uh, legalisms from the, the Jewish faith, including circumcision and other things, and uh, they, and they, um, they discerned the, the, what God was doing. They not only read the scriptures, and they did, but they also looked at what God was doing with the Gentiles, notice, noticing the fruit of the Spirit. And, and they came to a consensus, and they said something like this, it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit that we make these proposals or recommendations uh, for the Gentiles to be fully included in the church and not have to do A, B, C, and D. And I just think of so many times, like at our church, when we've had debates over sexuality or debates over women in ministry or debates over other more um, other things. Um, and we gathered together those who were interested in our church and, and really interested in the issue. We submitted one to another. We listened to the teachers in our midst. We carefully, uh, we, we usually started out by somehow owning our own histories of interpretation and where we got these interpretations of this text from and what was driving these interpretations. And then we open up the text again and we just carefully give testimony to what God has done in relation to this issue, this issue. And, and it's, it's very important to do that. And we might not all agree 
after like seven sessions together in our church, we do them on a, either a Sunday night or a Friday night. After seven sessions, we try to come to uh, what an Anabaptist would call a consensus. We don't take a vote. We just take a read of where everybody is on a scale from one to five. And, and even those who aren't five, meaning fully endorse the proposal, they came out and they, they said, well, I'm a four on this. And I don't necessarily agree with everything that you, that the, the consensus is saying, but I can trust the Holy Spirit's at work in this church, and I can submit to what you're doing and go along with it. I I just see God working, and I think that's the kind of reading of the New Testament or the Old Testament of the Bible together we need, as opposed to kind of taking up sides and arming ourselves with proof texts and clobbering each other with it. Yeah, that's so well said. I, would, I wish we had another session just to talk about those seven sessions and sort of what you do. Um, our, our church is actually right. We're starting a, a very similar process, discerning, listening circles, teaching, opening the Bible around um, whether or not we'll be fully affirming, fully inclusive of LGBTQ persons and weddings and membership and elders and staff and all that stuff. And I think that's the big thing. It's like um, one of the things that's so important to me is is to explain, like, gang, we, we're not going to end up all with uniform <laughs> beliefs on this issue. What a boring church we would be if we if we all believe the exact same thing. But can we, I love what you said, can we discern what the Spirit is doing in us and in the world? Can we discern what Jesus is leading us into? And then can we even even in some disagreement, can we come together for the sake, and this is an old, overused term, but I still love it, for the sake of the good news, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of what Jesus is doing in the world still? Can we do that? And I think these moments where, we, where the church changes their minds on things, it's very threatening, but it also can be, I, I think it can like, sort of push us through into a whole new way of being together because we realize, oh, we can do this without killing each other. Like we can do this without um, creating enemies and we can even do this and discover like, oh, I didn't know everything. And that's a very beautiful, beautiful yeah. moment, I think, you know, and it's so, um, yeah. And I is that the focus? I, when we're in these discussions, I want to focus as tightly as possible. Like I want, I, I don't, some people might know my work in the area of sexuality, but I, I don't want to make these grand policy decisions. I want to focus on specific decisions. Like maybe not even, like one of the things I'm really worried about when we start to talk about marriage is I, I really am firmly convinced evangelicals have got our what we understand to be marriage is all mixed up. We have a thoroughly screwed up sense and understanding of marriage and what God wants to do in marriage. So I, I, I want to focus on like, okay, when we talk about marriage, what are we actually mm. talking about? Or you know, um, I want to focus on very specific things like, because I want people to talk about what's going on in their lives, in their souls, and what's happening and where where are all these presuppositions going for? So, you know, somebody like, should we, should Mrs. So-and-so or should uh, Miss 
uh, Josephine Harris, lesbian woman, teach Sunday school? Or or should, um, you know, uh, uh, just the, the specific things we got to work out as a community. Why or why not? What's driving us? So we can get and, and by the way, those discussions are very hard, but if you can have yeah. those discussions in meaningful, genuine ways, open space to work, I just believe they're going to take us yeah. in directions we never expected. Well, I, that's, that's been my experience, and that's my hope as well. Um, okay, so we got like two minutes left, David, but the, and this is probably not a two-minute question, so feel free to just go. But where are you, where are you seeing hope? Um, you know, as you're doing, as you're, I mean, and by the way, one of the things I love about you is that you're somehow still a pastor, you know, <laughs> like you're, you're writing and speaking and thinking all these things and you've somehow found a way to stay in that, which is not everybody's gig, but, um, what, where are you seeing hope? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, uh, some, some days, by the way, <laughs> Uh, it, it, folks, let's just admit it. It's a discouraging times we're in. Oh yeah. Uh, but, uh, I, I, I just, and everything seems to be up for grabs and we're all disrupted. There's a lot of tumult. I mean, here in Chicago, we've had two of our biggest white evangelical churches fall completely apart, you know, because the leaders were found in some grotesque moral failure of some sort. And, and so, uh, I guess if I were to say, where am I finding hope? It's that these places that were so, I don't know, disrupt. I think the, the powers and principalities that we've been locked into are being disrupted. And I don't want to say those two big churches in Chicago were evil. I just want to say we were just in some really bad habits, hegemonous bad habits. And now there's just disruptions all over the place. Can we be the church that doesn't jump to power moves? just open space for God among us and lead gently, lead patiently, lead kindly, lead in these spaces. I'm talking about the racist places in our towns and villages. Can we go and instead of stirring up fights and getting our guns out, open spaces to bring people together to talk about what's happening and pray the Holy Spirit by the presence of Christ, do something new here. That's where I see hope is all the disruptions ever where it can be quite discouraging, but actually this is the first step in God working to change the world. He disrupts and then he goes to work. So I think that's the best and most encouraging thing I see right now. Yeah. So, I mean, what I hear you saying, I, I actually totally agree is that we were seeing all these disruptions and all these really sort of shocking, disappointing things and we can lose hope. But also what I hear you saying is that if we can engage in these discussions in broad view, you know, versus because there's a way of engaging in these discussions where it's, it's still us versus them. It's just trying to figure out yeah. who's right, you know? And it's like, well, we're totally missing the point, but if we can engage them in such a way in these disruptions to name the disruptions, name the PTSD, we all have from all of them, name the anxiety it causes, but then come together and say, but we actually, there's a long tradition of people, faithful people, start like I love the Acts um, story that you brought up that can with the by reading scripture, by talking to one another, by listening, and by by discerning the movement of the spirit today, we this can actually be a really, really good thing. Um, and that 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 is a 
great reminder. Thank you for that. I think it's so easy to get so lost in despair. Um, but you know, but it takes patience and it takes resilience and, you know, and you even just touched on like the, the, the reconciling movement of Christ where it's like the antidote to making the enemy is like bring, you know, coming face to face, you know, like even in your own spirit, refusing to, um, demonize someone, um, that's such hard work. It's so it's just for me, so easy just to, you know, uh, uh, get yeah. cynical Some, and anyway. Somebody at our pastor's meeting uh, Saturday uh, was asking, "How am I sleeping?" I uh, when I learned how you know all the antagonisms that used to drive me or worry me or upset me twenty years ago when I was in ministry now. Uh, let us be present to one another. I'm sleeping so much, but I'm sleeping at night. You just said it's hard work. I think all the antagonisms are killing us. Mm-hmm. And if we can just give it up and open space and trust in what God's doing, we might sleep a lot better and be a lot healthier. Wow. Well, that's a good way to <laughs> No, that's so good. It's so interesting. I was just talking to my wife today. I'm like, I don't sleep very well. So as my mind is going. Anyway, so... <laughs> Uh, thank you so much, David. This was so helpful. Uh, everybody, uh, pick up this book, The Church of Us Versus Them by David Fitch. I know that there are, I just talked to two churches who are working through this as like a, a book study um, in small groups and community groups. And so I think like if you're, if you're a pastor listening to this, this is a really helpful I think look at what is tearing apart your congregation probably, but also the culture and then what to actually how to engage in it in a way that's hopeful and helpful. So check it out. The church of us versus them freedom from a faith that feeds on the making enemies, David Fitch. Uh, thanks man. I really appreciate it. Thanks Steve. We'll, we'll see you along the way. Okay, buddy. Thanks man. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to this good word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash this good word. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.